0: singing to the world It's time we let the spirit come in Let it come on in I'm singing to the world Everybody's caught in the spin Look at where we
1: If you're listening to this, you've made it through part one of my two-parter on John Waters and gotten through most of the nasty stuff. No more dog turds, puke eaters, or lobster rape. Now we start in the late 70s and focus on box sex change castration, roaches that live in teenagers' beehive hairdos, and a maniacal mother that kills you if you don't rewind your videotapes. Hey girl, what you doing over there? Can't you see? I'm spraying my hair. Could you turn that racket trying
0: to iron in here. You like lingerie? How do you like
1: these little numbers? I sent away to them from Frederick's. They was expensive. I love the feel of cold nylon on my big butt.
0: What about Dexter, little
1: Lulu? Those two little bastards are a perfect argument for birth
0: control. Children would only get in the way of our erotic life stuff. Hello? Is this the cocksucker residence? God damn you, stop calling here. Isn't this 4215 Pussy Way? You bitch! Now let me check the zip code. 212, fuck you!
1: Today we talk about race wars, domestic film terrorism, and that time Tracy Ullman picked up a water bottle completely hands-free, as I present part two of my two-parter on John Waters' The Prince of Puke. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is normally not discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us
0: researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from murderous gays, to evil sanders to horny nuns. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome.
1: Hi, Tom. Hey, Slate. All right. We're acting like this has been like forever, but we just finished part one. And, and just... are you ready to do part two? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Great. Let the run fingers. with it. Run it. Run this bitch. Okay. So when we left off, it was 1974 and John had just released Female Trouble, a self-imposed X-rated middle finger to porn movies like Deep Throat and The Devil and Miss Jones. Mm-hmm. Female Trouble wasn't really the huge hit that Pink Flamingos was, although technically it's a much better film. But it didn't have the same shock value that Pink Flamingos had, and therefore movies like The Devil and Miss Jones and Deep Throat were much bigger draws. Many of the Dreamlanders scattered and started to get jobs based on their underground shock fame. Mink Stoll and David Lockery got some theater gigs, Edith Massey had a punk nightclub act and a couple of punk rock covers.
0: Hey, punks, get off the ground!
1: But the main Dreamlander to get steady work was Divine. She co starred in Restless Underwear with the Canadian rock band Rough Trade in Toronto. She played a prison matron in the play Women Behind Bars in New York City, which was so successful that it moved to London. She also attended as the guest of honor at the seventh annual Alternative Miss World Pageant, a drag queen competition. The event was filmed, and it screened at the Cannes Film Festival, and Divine got to go. That earned her a leading role in The Neon Woman, where she played the owner of a Baltimore strip club. It played in New York and then San Francisco, and was seen by celebrities like Eartha Kitt, Elton John, and Liza Minnelli. And it was due to these conflicts that she would be unable to be in John Waters' next film, Desperate Living. Desperate Living was a turning point for John Waters. Female Trouble wasn't the runaway success of Pink Flamingos, and David Lockery, depending on who you asked, was either having a really rough time with PCP or he'd already died of PCP-related causes, and Divine wasn't available. So he made the decision to make a lesbian film since he was short on men. He gave Divine's role to Susan Lowe and got his first celebrity star to help fill the Divine void. That celebrity was Liz Renee. Do you know Liz Renee? No. Yeah, don't worry if you've never heard of her. She wasn't really famous for anything at the time. She was a dancer but got most of her notoriety because she was mobster Mickey Cohen's girlfriend. Oh, wow. She actually went to prison for perjury and served three years. When she got out, she wrote a book, and that's when John approached her for the movie. Knowing her stardom wasn't going to last for very long, she agreed. Okay. All of the other Dreamlanders came back, and John set out to make an X-rated film with no actual sex or violence. He wanted it to be about lesbianism, something he hadn't really dug deep into yet, and he had Mink Stoll opposite a 300-pound black woman named Jean Hill, who played her stealing drinking maid. Have you seen this one? No, I haven't. Yeah, this, is, this one's something. <laughs>
0: It's contagious. It's outrageous. It's John Waters' Desperate Living, starring Hollywood sex goddess Liz Renee. Ah, oh, that support feels heavenly. Susan Lowe as androgynous Mole McHenry. If you don't give me a sex change, I'll cut off your Peter and throw it on me myself. And Mink Stole as hysterical outpatient Peggy Gravel. Get out of here, you Stinking piece of flesh. Follow the dead end road to Mortville, USA. Watch the most perverse sex acts ever brought to the screen. Featuring Edith Massey, the egg lady, as Queen Carlotta. Hi,
1: stupid. Hi, ugly. John Waters, Desperate Living. It isn't very pretty. After Mink has a manic episode, Jean Hill sits on her husband and accidentally kills him. They have to hide out in Mortville, a shanty town made of garbage and ruled by the evil Queen Carlotta, played by Edith Massey. Wow. The Queen's daughter is in love with a garbage-collecting nudist, and the Queen is furious about this. She plots to give everyone in Mortville rabies, while lesbian Mole McHenry gets a sex change to please her girlfriend, played by Liz Renee. One of the classic scenes from Desperate Living has Mole cut off her penis and throw it out the window. A dog walks by and eats it. In the end, the lesbians and people rise up and take Queen Carlotta down, cook her and eat her, and take over Mortville as Liz Renee becomes the new queen. Wow. Desperate Living is a super fun watch, although it doesn't have the same intrinsic social perspective that the earlier films have. Sure, It's full of great shocks and laughs, but ultimately it's a fairy tale, and therefore it kind of feels a little bit less, I guess, original than like Multiple Maniacs or Female Trouble. Okay. And it was getting harder and harder to shock John's audience. By 1977, porn had taken over the underground film scene, and there wasn't much of a place for John Waters' films. If you ventured out to see an X-rated movie, why not see a triple X porn? Right. That's how I look at it. The reviews were okay, and the movie did some business. It probably broke about even. But John knew his shock days were coming to an end, so he took a different approach going into the 80s. He made a movie that was dangerously close to being mainstream polyester was completely different than any other john waters films most of the dreamlanders took much smaller roles and he scaled back the personas of both divine and edith massey john loved the women in peril movies that douglas sirk made in the 50s and he wanted divine to be more lovable edith massey had been playing bad guy roles and he wanted her to be more of a sidekick to divine and since he was making a modern throwback he used the gimmickry of another classic filmmaker William Castle. Oh, yeah. John loved William Castle and wrote about him in his book Crackpot. And I spoke about it a little in my episode on William Castle from Season 3. John came up with the gimmick idea before he had even written a script, and he dubbed it Odorama, hmm? a scratch card that has certain numbered areas where when a number flashes on screen, you smell that area on the card and get a whiff of what Divine was smelling in the movie. Hello, moviegoers. I am Dr. Arnold Crackenshaw. And I am here to explain to you the wondrous screen gimmick, Odorama. Odorama will enable you, the viewer, to actually smell right from your movie seat some of life's most fragrant odors. The card is actually quite simple to operate. Just listen carefully and follow my instructions. When a number appears on the screen, that is your signal to scratch and to sniff the same number on your Odorama card. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Look, use anything you want to scratch it. Use a key, a coin. Use your fingernail. Hmm? Number one. Ah. Now sniff it. Number one. Yeah, see? You get it? You smell it? Yeah? It works. By God, it actually works. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Odorama. Huh? The odors were roses, flatulence, model airplane glue pizza gasoline skunk natural gas new car smell dirty shoes and air freshener polyester was about francine fishpaw played by divine who was a fat suburban housewife whose husband runs a dirty movie theater and constantly has christian picketers on her lawn she has two ungrateful children lulu a beer drinking slut that dances for quarters at school and dexter who sniffs poppers and has a foot fetish Francine declines into a life of alcoholism and only has one friend played by Edith Massey. Lulu gets pregnant and gets taken away by nuns. Dexter gets arrested for being the Baltimore foot stomper, which may be one of the funniest, like, hilarious John Waters foot jokes. So basically, he goes around and he, like, stalks women and then he stomps on their foot and then, like, laughs as they, like, cry in pain or whatever. <laughs> and it's becoming like, who is the Baltimore foot stomper? That's fucked up. It's so weird. Her husband leaves her for Mink stall and her whole life falls apart. But all of a sudden, Tab Hunter, for real Tab Hunter, rolls into town, and he and Divine begin a love affair. Lulu has a miscarriage and takes up macrame. Dexter is also rehabilitated after jail, and everyone lives happily ever after. Just kidding, this is a John Waters movie. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. Tab Hunter is having an affair with Francie's cocaine-addicted mom. Her husband and Mink Stoll try to murder her, and all the bad characters are murdered one by one, mostly by happy accidents. With all the bad characters dead, Francine, her kids, and Edith Massey and her boyfriend actually do happily ever after. Oddly enough, Polyester was a hit. It was the beginning of the conservative Reagan years, and John Waters taking a conservative approach, albeit in his own way, played. Tab Hunter gave the movie some star power, Odorama gave it some camp value and a collectible to go home with, and Divine got really good reviews. It was a coming-of-age in sorts for John Waters, and he, you know, did it his own way. Right. Of course, Polyester was filled with some great lines, my personal favorite being, so just side note, I don't say the R word, but it doesn't mean that I can't laugh at it. So Divine's mother says, Good lord, Francine, don't you know it's bad luck to let retarded people in your home? Just I thought up. was the funniest thing in the world. Yeah, she also says, "Let's move to Miami. Finally, I can get my facelift. I want a Cadillac too, a big purple Cadillac, so I can ride around and laugh at poor people." <laughs> so Such a John up. Waters line. That's a very
0: John Waters yeah. line. So what year was this? This is 1980. Fun fact here, mm-hmm. and I figured this out retroactively. My seventh grade teacher brought her odorama card and went and saw polyester. Oh, really? And I didn't know what the hell it was. I mean, I knew scratch and sniff stuff. She tried to explain it. Uh huh. There's no nothing else in the world with odorama, so I totally I drew, I drew the connections later. Right. But yeah, so my seventh grade teacher was actually a lot more hip. That was I a thought. John
1: Waters fan. and yeah, went yeah. to go see polyester in the theater. It's amazing. Yeah. Unfortunately, this would be Edith Massey's last film. She died a little while later. She was older than the Dreamlanders mm-hmm. and also, you know, a, a little large and unhealthy. Mm-hmm. John still talks about her in every interview I've ever heard. She was yeah. truly one of God's unique little flowers. Mm-hmm. John was catching a second wind, a little bit of mainstream success, and some legit talent. Baltimore was taking him more seriously as well. John and Divine were appearing on Letterman together. <laughs>
0: Hi there. Welcome back to the show. Filmmaker John Waters calls Divine the most beautiful woman in the world. Since Divine is a man, John will have to explain this statement later in the show. <laughs> Divine has appeared in such films as Pink Flamingos, Female Trouble, and Polyester. He is currently touring with a nightclub act and has a new record on the pop charts. It says here, singing with Paul Schaefer in the band, Born to Be Cheap. Please welcome <laughs> Divine.
1: No one could have predicted what would happen next. He made a star-studded, PG-rated 1960s dance movie with Sonny Bono and Debbie Harry. That movie, of course, was Hairspray Mm -hmm. in 1988. When John was growing up, he was obsessed with the Buddy Dean show, a sort of local Baltimore ripoff of American Bandstand. Mm -hmm. It was an all-white teenage dance show with regulars that were local celebrities at the time. As it transitioned from the late 50s to the 60s, the style started changing. Girls went from ponytails and poodle skirts to big bouffant hairdos and exposed shoulders. The teens also started dancing to black music, although the show wasn't integrated. In fact, it ended up being cancelled because the parents of the teens wouldn't allow for their kids to dance with black people. John had written and talked about his obsession with The Buddy Dean Show, but no one really expected him to make a period piece about it. Right. Originally called White Lipstick, John started conceiving the movie about an overweight girl that lands on The Buddy Dean Show as a way of transitioning the show over to being integrated, and he wanted Divine at 43 years old to play that role, and also the role of her mother, which is, I think is hilarious. It is hilarious. New Line Studios, once a struggling little studio that had picked up Pink Flamingos back in 1972 and had financed and distributed his next few films didn't love this casting decision and Mm-mm. since they had just made the blockbuster hit nightmare on elm street yeah. got a little bit more say when it came to casting and they gave john money this time two million to be exact which was about 1.5 million more dollars than he had ever had to make a movie yeah no shit so no one was fucking around this time there was a lot at stake mm-hmm By this time, John Waters had already established himself as a writer, speaker, teacher, and commentator, so he had made a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. He pulled in all the big names he could afford. Jerry Stiller, Ruth Brown, Pia Zadora, Rick Akasek, I looked up the pronunciation. Okasek, oh damn it. Yeah, I looked up the pronunciation and still did it wrong. Oh, big deal. Yeah. Sonny Bono and Debbie Harry, to name a few, with other parts going to Mink Stoll, Mary Vivian Pierce, and of course, Divine, who plays the mother role in drag, yeah. but also a racist studio head as a man. But the star was Ricky Lake, an Ithaca College overweight theater girl who could dance. She answered a casting call, and John and his casting agent, Pat Moran, chose her immediately. There was no backup to Ricky Lake. She was the star. Oh, yeah. Hairspray is about Tracy Turnblad, an overweight Baltimore teen that gets on the normally square, skinny white dance show, renamed the Corny Collins Show. She rises in popularity, but faces a backlash as well. She's poor and a, quote, hair hopper. So the principal sends her to special ed. She befriends the black community and fights to get the show integrated, where it does at the end, and she wins Miss. Auto Show, 1963. It sounds like a pretty simple plot for John Waters, but of course he packs the movie full of John Waterisms like girls with roaches in their hair, a mm. puke scene, of course, of course, reformatory school rats, and a scene where Debbie Harry pops his daughter's huge white head pimple. Baltimore, 1962. The heyday of hairdos and hair don'ts.
0: We shall overcome someday. Not with that hair, you won't.
1: Heartthrobs and hefty girls.
0: Mama, welcome to the 60s.
1: Hot dates and hip talkers. No matter what you have heard, we are going to teach the white children how to do
0: the bird. And one magic potion that holds it all together.
1: They put me in special ed just because of my hair. It's the times. They're a-changing. Something's blowing in the wind. You got something against Connie Francis? White trash, plain and simple. Fetch you my diet pills, would you, hon? Oh, mother, you're so 50s. The new comedy from John Waters. Hairspray. Hairspray. Hairspray had a limited release in February 1988, with an unprecedented PG rating, and was immediately a hit. The reviews were great, audiences loved Ricky Lake, and Divine was getting the best reviews of his career it went into wider release and went to Sundance and was nominated for six Independent Spirit Awards. Wow! But there was bad news. Divine and John Waters were touring the movie and had a late dinner three weeks after the release. Divine was scheduled to be on an episode of Married with Children the next day as a man and never showed for rehearsal. He was found in his hotel room dead later that day. The remaining Dreamlanders all came together and a huge funeral was thrown in Baltimore where Divine was buried next to his grandmother. Once a Baltimore suburban outcast, Divine was buried in baltimore a mainstream star so it does i mean that's kind of great was it a heart attack What it was you know, fatness yeah damn <laughs> sleep i think it was complex i think it was the official thing was complications due to an en- enlarged heart okay so no, something so it was something Gosh, gotcha. yeah. it seems like he died in his sleep and you know whatever right he wasn't very old you know he was no, no, 42 no. or 43 yeah but... damn and now john waters was a mainstream film director famous for a 60s dance movie so why not make a 50s musical based on the huge success of hairspray there was a bidding war on his next movie crybaby starring heartthrob and then eccentric johnny depp as john waters first ever male lead huh spoiler alert crybaby kind of doesn't work no It's structured like a traditional movie musical, where songs are sung on stage, but also a few numbers where people break into spontaneous song. Right. It's the story of a group of juvenile delinquents led by Crybaby and his sister Pepper, played by Johnny Depp and Ricky Lake and their friends, one who's played by once underage porn queen Tracy Lords. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. They're at odds with the squares, which were the wealthy suburban 1950s preppies. When Crybaby and Square Allison fall in love, it starts a Baltimore culture war a la attraction crashy version of West Side Story. Other stars include Iggy Pop, Polly Bergen, and Susan Tyrell. Hmm. Crybaby had a huge budget of $12 million. I mean, this is John Waters with $12 million. And luckily, it shows. It had school sets, car stunts, indoor and outdoor sets with motorcycles and a jailbreak. This was more money than John knew what to do with. Right. The costumes and makeup are completely top-notch, the music is right, and they even evaded Tracy Lord's arrest a couple of times since the feds were still trying to put together a case on her illegal underage porn career and were constantly stalking her on set. I didn't know that. It's so weird. That is weird. And one more thing, newcomer actress Patty Hurst drops the F-bomb, which is probably the funniest scene in the movie yeah context and people that weren't around when this actually happened. Patty Hearst was the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst. He was the newspaper tycoon that Citizen Kane was based on. Yeah, She was kidnapped by the symbi- Symbionese Liberation Army while in her apartment at Berkeley, raped and brainwashed and even participated in a bank robbery where a policeman was shot and killed. Yeah, She was arrested in an airport, stood trial and was sentenced to seven years of prison until Jimmy Carter shortened her sentence in 1979. I just have to stop up and say this, this is bonkers. It's very like, bonkers. This is a bonkers thing that happened in American history. Bill Clinton ended up pardoning her in 2001. So, John Waters, who was obsessed with court cases, you know, mm-hmm. the Mansons, everything like that, right. he had attended her trial and was completely obsessed by her. I bet. He met her at a film festival and asked her to be in his next film. She kind of thought he was joking. She'd never heard of him. Yeah. More on this in a minute. Okay. The success of Hairspray didn't carry over to Crybaby. 1990 was a big year for film. It put out Goodfellas, Pretty Woman, Home Alone, Total Recall, Dances with Wolves, and of course the surprise hit Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Whoopi <laughs> Goldberg. Talked about that before. Crybaby just didn't fit in anywhere that year. Yeah. It's developed a cult following, of course, and it helped a bunch of people out, namely Johnny Depp, who was trying to break out of the television network model he was stuck in with 21 Jump Street. Oh, yeah. And Ricky Lake further widened her appeal to America, which started negotiations of The Ricky Lake Show, which put her on every daytime TV set in America. Mm-hmm. A few years passed by, and John wanted to go back to what he did best female led, present day suburbia gone wrong. Mm hmm. But of course, he didn't have Divine for a female lead. So he pulled in the big guns and got a big Hollywood name for his next movie. You know who it was? (laughs) Yep. Kathleen Turner. Kathleen Turner. Once he had her, he didn't need much more to get funding for his next film, Serial Mom, from mm-hmm. 1994. Most of the remaining Dreamlanders joined on, from Mink Stoll to Mary Vivian Pierce, Susan Lowe, and also the newest member, Ricky Lake. Serial Mom was a little different than previous John Waters movies, because the settings were all prime, even upper-middle-class suburban Baltimore. The costumes looked like they came from Lame Bryant, and it has a genuine cheerfulness that no other John movies up to this point had. Right.
0: How did America's number one one mom turn into one of america's most wanted is she really guilty are you a serial killer chip the only cereal i know anything about is rice krispies meanwhile this small baltimore suburb
1: Please!
0: keeps getting smaller ah! and smaller ah! it's been a crazy day hasn't it Savoy Pictures asks the burning question: Is your wife mental? Is Beverly Sutton just a sweet suburban housewife? Oh, I don't know what it is about today, but I feel great, Cookie. Or is she Cereal mom? Sierra, 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 Sierra. Cool.
1: Is she in a band?
0: <laughs> Kathleen Turner, Sam Waterston, and Ricky Lake. Cereal mom. Every woman wants to be wanted. Just not for Murder One.
1: Have you seen this one? Yeah. Uh, I mean,
0: it's been forever. I feel like I watched it with you at some point.
1: I know you've seen it a million times, but I thought... Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about it a little bit in a minute, but this one was really my favorite. I saw it when I was 14. I'd never seen a John Waters movie before. My parents drove us to the movie theater, and like we usually did, they went to go see something, and I saw something else. They learned that lesson It was really funny, though, too, because I was thinking about it the other day. I didn't write anything about this, but... I think they went to go see Sirens, which was you remember Sirens? Yeah, was, uh,
0: it's a forgettable movie, but it had that one supermodel naked in it. Was it.
1: Elle she was McPherson. Awful. Yeah, she was
0: and totally it was naked. a lot of boobs, and you know, se- took place in like some like wellness. I don't know something that's an artist. I don't know. Yeah, it was it was an artist was
1: painting an these sexy women. nude, and then yeah. like a priest went there or something and he got sexually awakened or something like that it's, yeah it's, it's not it's all right it's, it's just great. really i think i really liked it at the time was it hugh grant i think it, was hugh it grant. might as well yeah, have been hugh grant. anyway the funniest thing was this is where my parents must have figured out that i was gay because they were like oh we're gonna go see sirens r-rated movie with a lot of naked supermodels and i was like i'd like to go see serial mom with kathleen turner instead so like they went to go see a boob movie and i went to go see Kathleen Turner murder people and a John right. Waters movie. Then you know have been like, whoop, we got a gay one. You know what? They sat
0: to that whole movie and talked about how they think you were gay. they, I'm were sure. like, we... they probably didn't even watch it. No, yeah. they were like, we, there's something. They're we like, what to, do we do? We've got a gay, gay one. Yeah.
1: Rough plot. Perfect mom Dorothy Sutphin has the perfect model family. Mm-hmm. Father Eugene, played by Sam Waterson, daughter Ricky Lake is a college student, and high schooler Chip, who loves old horror movies and works at a video store. After a neighbor gets death threats and prank phone calls, and the police get involved, we find out that Beverly is the culprit. After the family leaves for the day, she calls her neighbors and says... hello is this the cocksucker
0: residence god damn you stop calling here isn't this four two one five pussy way you bitch now let me check the zip code two one two fuck you the police are tracing this call this very minute well Dottie hinkle then why aren't they here huh fuck face fuck you That shit is funny. It's I forgot about very funny. funny. Yeah,
1: it's watching Kathleen Turner scream like prank phone call obscenities like yeah. into the phone is very funny. Calling people cocksuckers, That's That's pretty good.
0: Clearly, she must have had a blast making this movie.
1: I think she did. I think that she really enjoyed this. Yeah. So. so later, she goes to Chip's parent-teacher conference. Upon hearing that he is drawing movie posters for old gore movies like Blood Feast, oh great! She runs over the teacher a few times with her car, killing him. <laughs> she then kills Ricky Lake's boyfriend for her for a date with Tracy Lords, and then kills two dental patients of her husband's, followed by a woman that wouldn't rewind her VHS tapes. Yeah, that's justified. Agreed. And then Chip's best friend for not wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> She's caught at an L7 concert, however, they played under the name The Camel Lips. Do you remember this? <laughs> no. So funny. And she goes to court. The third act is a court case where she fires her lawyer and tries her own case in front of a jury, one of whom is Patty Hearst who Beverly is horrified at because every day she wears white shoes, even though it's after Labor Day. Oh, I remember that. Huh? One by one, Beverly discredits the witnesses. She keeps whispering, fuck you, to Dottie Hinkle, until Dottie Hinkle flies off the handle, screaming, and is dragged out of court. She asks a neighbor if she recycles, and as the entire courtroom waits in silence, she admits that she doesn't, and the courtroom is horrified. <laughs> Suzanne Summers shows up in the courtroom since she's going to play Beverly in the Lifetime movie version, and basically the case falls apart after that, and Beverly's found not guilty. As she's leaving, she finds Patty Hearst in the private payphone bank and has an exchange that is my favorite John Waters moment of all time. I'm going to play it for you. Okay.
0: You can't wear white shoes after Labor Day. That's not true anymore. Yes, it is. Didn't your mother ever tell you? (laughs) Ah, Now you know. No. Please. Fashion has changed. No. It
1: hasn't. I forgot about the blood going down the, the oh, heel. It was such a classic. Yeah, it's that's really great. just my favorite thing in the entire world. Yeah, and that's awesome. Especially and just not to just repeat lines, but no please, fashion has changed. No, mm-hmm. it, it hasn't. Serial <laughs> mom didn't really do great at the box office, and here's probably why. A few movies that were released in 1990 for context, standard Hollywood fare like Forrest Gump, The Mask, and True Lies dominated the box office, but there were also some indies like Clerks, Hoop Dreams, and Reality Bites. And then there was also Pulp Fiction, Natural Born Killers, and Heavenly Creatures, all dark, murdery, social fantasy satires. Right. Serial Mom didn't fit anywhere into this, kind of like Cry Baby. Yeah, yeah. It had a big Hollywood actress and was a comedy, but it was R-rated and a fantasy, but not as dark as Natural Born Killers. Yeah. Then you look at a 1994 timeline and realize, John Waters wasn't making fun of the O.J. case. It hadn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. John was obsessed with murder cases. He went to all of them, from the Mansons to Sid Vicious to, of course, Patty Hearst. Serial Mom came out in April of 1994, and Nicole Simpson and Ron Brown were murdered in June of 94. We all know, of course, by the time this made it to court, it was broadcast on network TV and basically invented court TV. Right. John was just a little too ahead of his time. Like n- that whole thing hadn't erupted yet. Right, so right, So sure. he kind of like saw it coming. But anyway, the movie was too early. Serial mm-hmm. Mom might not be John Waters' best film, but it is certainly my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I watch it all of the time. No, I know. You love this movie. God, God. John Waters had a few not big hits, and therefore his budget shrunk a little for his next film, of which he went back to a more teenage approach. Mm-hmm. That movie was Pecker from 1998. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pecker starred Edward Furlong. So I thought that Edward Furlong was dead, but that is not true. He has had a bunch of like domestic abuse and kind of like some drug He's had problems. problems. Yes. Yeah, but he is still alive. I was actually just uh, searching for it and he was in a movie called Arachnoquake, you know, which was one of those wow. Sharknado movies or whatever. Yeah. I watched it. it of course you did. Terrible. I also really enjoyed it. Of, of course you did. Do you remember the year that Christina Ricci was in every single movie that came out yes. that year. So this was one of the movies yes, that Christina was. Ricci, because she was in every movie. Also, Mary Kay Place and Martha Plimpton and Lily Taylor were in this. minkstall Mary Vivian Pierce, Patty Hearst, and Susan Lowe all came back for it as well. The only person that didn't come back was Ricky Lake, because she was right in the middle of the show. And her show was hugely popular. Really big. So did I ever tell you that I went to a taping of the Ricky Lake show? Get the fuck out of here. I you've never told never, you this. No, of course you've never told me this. So we, I was working in New York. I was working at a restaurant restaurant and somebody scored a couple tickets to this and we were all like we're gonna go and it was early in the morning and for restaurant people that was probably 10 30 but anyway we all got up and went down to the ricky lake show we stood in line and then got in and the episode i'll never forget the title of it this was kind of towards the end of the ricky lake show right but it was divas Dist on tape <laughs> And I don't remember what it, it was all fake. You know, I mean, right, it was right, like right. somebody caught a video of, you know, someone being like, you bitch. And then they smack each other. Mm. She was kind of at this point, I think, trying to compete with what's Springer. his name. Yeah, with the Springer show or whatever. So kind of towards and more, the, end of the And all these other yeah.
0: trash to, up in the Annie.
1: she had yeah, to try to keep up. Totally. But it was a really great experience. I um, but I do remember that they were kind of like, all right, like, you know, we've taped the first episode. And now here's a bonus. We're going to tape a second episode so anybody that wants to stick around and we were like let's get out of here <laughs> we are like that was enough right one was plenty mm-hmm. pecker is about a teenage amateur photographer named pecker mm-hmm. he takes pictures all around baltimore with his friend brandon sexton jr from welcome to the dollhouse oh yeah and christina reaching his photos get noticed by art mogul lily taylor and he does a fancy new york show and starts to get famous in the art world okay But the fame starts to ruin his Baltimore life and everything starts to fall apart. He decides to stay in Baltimore and make all the snooty art people come to him where he throws a giant trashy gallery party at a bar with male strippers and beer and everyone has a great time. Nice. I remember seeing Pecker at the theater and thinking, John Waters has made like a really kind of nice, pleasant film. Yeah. And he says that's the main complaint about it. It was too nice. But it is a decent movie. It just doesn't have the same sting and kind of like mean spirit that John Waters films are known for. Right. All the characters are just very nice people and are truly trying. And even the sex jokes don't quite land. It was just like a little too nice of a movie. Right. Did you see this one?
0: Yes. And I forgot a lot about it, but you could tell there was little bits of John Waters isms in the margins. Yeah. But yeah, overall, it was just a nice,
1: pleasant movie. Yeah. Kind of didn't really have any like one memorable thing, you know, from it. He did not make the same mistake on Cecil B. Demented a few years ago. <laughs> Cecil B. Demented may actually be one of his meanest films. Melanie Griffith stars as Honey Whitlock, an aging Julia Roberts type actress headed to the Baltimore premiere of her new shitty feel good movie when she's kidnapped by a group of underground filmmakers that are fed up with garbage Hollywood movies.
0: <laughs> Hello, Miss Whitlock. I am Cecil B. Demented, and I'm your new director. I'd like you to meet your co stars. I call him the sprocket hole.
1: Led by Stephen Dorff, they force her to make an independent rogue movie called Raving Beauty, along with a crew of oddball 20-somethings, including Maggie Gyllenhaal, Michael Shannon, Alicia Witt, and Adrian Grenier? Grenier? Grenier. Yeah, why not? If this plot sounds familiar, you may remember it from the real-life kidnapping of Patty Hearst, who blessed the script and, of course, appears in the movie. Mm -hmm. Honey, like Patty Hearst, becomes sort of brainwashed, but also legit into the process as the crew makes terrorist attacks on the Baltimore Film Commission, where they force everyone to slurp raw oysters as they gag in horror – they crash the set of Forrest Gump 2 where Kevin Nealon is playing Forrest and they throw smoke bombs into a screening of the director's cut of Patch Adams, screaming, Patch Adams doesn't deserve a director's cut. The original was long enough. <laughs> very funny. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Cecil B. Demented was one of my favorite John Waters movies back in the late 90s because it's so full of underground director and movie references. But unfortunately, it doesn't quite land the same way that Hairspray and Female Trouble did. Okay. It's super violent, which is great, Mm -hmm. but there isn't much of a plot beyond the kidnapping, and they're making a movie. John Waters is really good with a plot. He knows how to kind of build subplots, and he's very good at ending movies with a bang. This one, according to Roger Ebert, was more like, quote, a home movie with a bunch of kids goofing off. However, Cecil B. Demented yet again has some of John's best lines ever. Okay. When Cecil and Crew hijack Forrest Gump 2, he yells, I am Cecil B. Demented, and this picture is terminated. The director says, What do you think you're doing? Nobody can stop the popularity of Forrest Gump. (laughs) That was hilarious. pretty funny. Right before they go bust up Patch Adams, they're all in the van, and Melanie Griffith pleads for Cecil to cancel the scene. He says, look, your Hollywood system stole our sex and co-opted our violence, so there's nothing left for our kinds of movies except this. Great. Great. Such a John Waters thing. Yeah, it is. When they get inside, Cecil says to the concession girl, I'm Cecil B. Demented, and you're in my movie. Ruin and take, and you're dead. She goes, do you know Quentin Tarantino? I love his movies. And he yells, no ad-libbing, and shoots his gun up in the air, which is great because that is really a John Waters thing. He hates ad-libbing. Of course, we all know what comes next, Hairspray the musical. Mm -hmm. Hairspray was one of those movies that played really well on video and really well on TV. It didn't need any censoring for the networks, and since it was a period piece, held up really well over the years, it holds up very well now. A lot of people actually think that it is a musical, but it just has a A lot of musical numbers in it that, you know, people dance to. Right. So turning it into a musical for the stage seemed to make sense. John Green lit it immediately, and flash forward a few years, Hairspray the musical wins eight Tonys, including Best Musical. Wow. Everyone from Kristen Chenoweth, Ariana Grande, Jennifer Hudson, Nick Jonas, Drew Carey, and Martin Short, like everyone in the world played in some version of the musical. Yeah. But most importantly, it was decided that the role of Edna Turnblad would be played by a male character in drag to honor the legacy of Divine. Of course. And that typically was played by Harvey Firestein on uh, stage. I don't know why I didn't know that, but I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. He was like, hello, I'm Edna Turnblad. <laughs> that's, that's really good. Yeah, yeah that's thank not you. bad. Yeah. After the success of the televised Hairspray Live, the film version came out in 2007 and also had an all star cast including Michelle Pfeiffer, Christopher Walken, Amanda Bynes, James Mardson, Queen Latifah, Zach Efron, and Allison Janney. Even John Waters himself had a cameo, and John Travolta played the role of Edna Turnblad and did fine you know i'm
0: curious how you feel about that
1: i have really conflicting feelings on it because the biggest thing that i was really nervous about is that i didn't want anyone to be better than divine so i didn't want it to be like an oscar winning role that someone was just like he was better than divine right luckily that didn't happen right so it's a little bit of a caricature of that role he really leans very hard on that baltimore accent and i feel like a lot of it isn't correct okay but who cares? The movie is, it's an homage to the original, but it's also much more kitschy, sure. kind of like it's more camp than the original movie is. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, if that's what it is, I can live with that. Okay. That that makes, does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Hairspray has since gone on to become the fourth highest grossing musical in U.S. cinema history. So I don't know that. I think this is the only way that John Waters has any money was because he sold the right. Yeah, it yeah, did yeah. so well on Broadway. It had all the touring, you know, and then the movie did well. I, I think that John Waters has probably never made much money on any of his movies. And this was, you know, kind of what actually like bought a couple of houses for right. him. Still his you know. cash cow. Yeah, totally. Good for him. Yeah. John came up with his last film, A Dirty Shame, from reading the names and descriptions of weird sex acts on the internet. Okay. He decided to make a screwball sex comedy a la Private Resort and Screwballs, but of course he did it in the John Waters way, and instead of making it about a bunch of guys trying to get laid on spring break, he made it about Tracy Ullman, who gets bonked on the head and turns into a sex maniac. <laughs> she joins a sort of sex-crazed cult, headed up by Johnny Knoxville and Selma Blair, and they terrorize their suburban neighborhood. It's pretty light on plot, which is kind of a shame, because it has some pretty great moments, specifically the one where a bunch of elderly nursing home residents are in a big circle doing the hokey pokey. Have you you seen A Dirty Shame? I have not. Tracy Ullman starts to get horny and is having sex hallucinations, and gets in the middle of the circle and starts doing a dance that's probably similar to the Bodie Green from Hag in a Black Leather Jacket. Hmm. A doctor tosses her a water bottle, and she puts it on the ground and then squats onto it and picks it up with her vag while dancing mm. to the hokey pokey and residents all freak out in disgust it's kind of amazing let show it how do they show no it? of course not you know <laughs> she's wearing a denim skirt okay. and she kind of hikes it up and then you can't see it like go okay, in gotcha. and then she come when she comes up off the ground the it's bottle gone. is right yeah well no it's hanging out like, oh yeah it's like her lips picked it up you know <laughs> Do you want me to draw you a picture? No, that's, that's fine. Cool. Some critics got a dirty shame and some didn't. But the main group that didn't was the MPAA, who sure. gave it an NC-17 rating. John had spent 50 years fighting with film censors, but when he went to appeal, he realized there were no cuts he could make which were going to give it an R rating. Right. Even the MPAA was at a loss. If you've listened to my episode on the rise and fall of NC-17, you know that NC-17 means that many theaters won't show the movie, and if no one shows it, no one sees it. Right. A Dirty Shame barely made $2 million at the box office. And that was the end of the line for John Waters' movies. The last few failed to make money, so he can't really get financing for anything new. He says studios want him to make a movie for under a million, and he doesn't want to do that anymore. He's right. been there, he's done that. So, But don't feel bad for John Waters. He has plenty of money, mostly due to probably hairspray, readings, appearances, and books. His last book, Carsick, was the true story of how he hitchhiked from Baltimore to San Francisco at almost 70 years old. NPR in the New York Times picked it up and gave it good reviews and actually made it on the New York Times bestseller list. Do you have something to talk about?
0: Well, okay, so I have Car Sick, and I just started it, but then I had to put it aside because we were researching podcasts, and mm-hmm. that takes up all my reading and shit. But it's on my nightstand, so that's, as soon as we're done with all this shit, I'm picking it back up. Yep. But I did see John Waters when he was promoting Make Trouble, which mm-hmm. is the very thin, small little book that is a reprint of, uh, I think, a graduation speech. It was a college speech, speech. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's good, and it's mm-hmm. it's motivational, and it's nice. And he did a and a and a book signing, so when you went to the thing, you got a copy of the book, and they right. signed it for you. And I think I mentioned it before, because I gave him a business card, and Told him about, told him about, about the podcast, yeah. of course. And there's a picture, I think, on our Facebook page. He uh, was doing a Q&A, and he was talking about all types of stuff. And he was talking about, I think he met Russ Meyer or whatever. So I got a chance to ask him a question yep. because I know what a big fan he was of William Castle and you did your William Castle episode. So I'd asked if he ever actually had met him or seen him in person. And he never has, but when he was playing the role for Feud, Feud, Betty and
1: Joan, yeah. Yeah. He played William Castle in the TV in show. The TV
0: show, yeah. And he met with William Castle's family, and I guess they pretty much blessed. Off on it, but he just wanted to get some insight to the man. Yeah. Because he
1: looked nothing like him, acted nothing like him. He just, they chose him because he idolized him. Right.
0: He was thrilled to do it. It was like one of his favorite things to do because he loved William Castle so much. So it was cool talking to him and hearing him talk. Just a
1: couple of things. Um, So in his book, Shock Value, he interviews Russ Meyer and also interviews Herschel Gordon Lewis. So, Uh yeah. So they have kind of like conversations about, you know, exploitation film and everything like that, which I love, but also I love because. My God, if this episode hasn't come full circle on like every episode we've oh, yeah. ever done and you know, oh, William shit. Castle and everything like that, it just it makes me really happy that we've kind of gotten to the point of now when we're talking about something and we're somebody references something like, like Oh yeah, we talked about that in ep- season two, episode four, which it was you know, something together. like that. It's and great. it just makes me happy how much I've learned about exploitation films and, you know, baby rape and you know <laughs> yeah. lobster rape and, yeah. and you know, everything. Fisting, just makes whatever. me really happy.
0: So one last thing with that too. He mentioned how the city of Baltimore was contemplating putting a statue, the Divine statue, a Divine yeah. statue, and he was kind of like against it. He was like spend it on schools or some shit. Right. But also he, and that brought up the conversation of people would send him dog shit mm-hmm. when people all the time, came out, yeah. and he's like, "Why are these people sending me? Like I'm not a fan of dog shit. I right. did it for shock value, you know. Like <laughs> I don't want to collect dog shit. Right. And the poor Divine would get it, you know, all the all time. The time. Yeah. And it was just hearing him talk about that stuff was really funny. And you don't really think about that you know you don't think
1: about like the, the fallout of that which is everyone sending you shit all right, the time you get a turd in the mail every day yeah right it's, it's disgusting yeah <laughs> one of the reasons why i kind of did this the way that i did was because he tells the funniest stories oh yeah but you can listen to him everywhere so you can listen to the commentaries on all of his films he does director's commentary on every movie except mondo Trashow, obviously mm-hmm. um but also you know he writes books he does podcasts he's interviewed all these places so if you want more john waters information about him as a person and just like his funny stories. There's plenty of stuff you can listen to. I kind of wanted to tell a story from beginning to end of kind of like where his career was within the movies and everything like that. So good. Well, um, I do have to mention two things before I start to wrap up. So I've also seen John Waters' five times in my life the first time was at a bar in Baltimore I have really good friends there the bar is called Dizzy's and uh, we go there pretty frequently Mm -hmm. and one night we were like sitting there I had just come in off like the Amtrak or something and we were sitting there and they were like oh my god turn around John Waters just walked in and of course I was like oh my god Mm -hmm. so that was the first time I saw him I've seen him three times in Provincetown so I've been to Provincetown for the past three summers I've seen him every year riding his bike uh, with his friends so he's very tall and skinny Mm -hmm. and can still ride a bike apparently and I think he's 71 now and then I also saw him when he did Female Trouble at the at Lincoln Center which was great to just see him sitting there and talking about I chose Female Trouble because he did all of his movies but that was his favorite so I really wanted to see him kind of talk about that and he said one of my favorite quotes of all time they were talking about some you know filmmaker or something and he was saying that he just loved him because all of his films were super depressing and he was just (laughs) like you know I love a feel bad movie and I just thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard yeah
0: I wish I could remember the stuff that he's like he had great lines when I saw him and I can't remember any of them. But if you get a chance to see him speak or hear him speak anywhere, take the opportunity because
1: it's unforgettable. yeah, Yeah,
0: he's a really great speaker and he's very pleasant to hear
1: talk. Yeah. He just rattles off stories and one-liners and everything. He is very good at public speaking. If you've never
0: seen him before in person at all, you'll be pleasantly surprised.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm starting to wrap up. Okay, great. So I never try to do a moral of the story when it comes to my director profiles because, you know, there usually isn't one. Right. But I kind of have a little bit of a moral to the story here. Okay. So John Waters never really fit into the mainstream, even as a child. No. And even though that would have been easier for him just to kind of pretend like most people in the 50s did. Sure, That would have been the comfortable option. He probably could have done that. But he made films outside of the mainstream with ideals, which made him, you know, not famous per se, but infamous, right? Sure. And that was super great. But he had done all of those shocking things after a while, and, and mainstream culture kind of caught up to it. Like, all of a sudden, there kind of wasn't really a market for John Waters' movies because his shocking things kind of wore off on him. So I think what most filmmakers at the time would have done was either moved on to something completely different or just keep trying and kind of, it would have gotten a little bit sad. Yeah. But instead, he kind of infiltrated mainstream culture, but then, you know, he was putting this kind of shocking and offbeat moments into mainstream culture instead. So as opposed to kind of being outside of it, once he saw that that wasn't going to work anymore, he like got into the thing that he hated the most, but he did it with his his, you know, own shocking moments and everything like that. And so he kind of tricked the mainstream into like co-opting his culture. I just thought that that was super interesting, you know, because a lot of times when you see somebody, a director or an artist or, you know, musicians, especially, which kind of don't have a place anymore, the story ends there. And he kind of just flipped that on its head and, like, did something completely different. And, of course, that's why we're still talking about him now. I mean, well,
0: you gotta look at it this way. You know, high schools are still putting on a play written by a man who made a drag queen Eat real dog shit off the sidewalk. Yep. I mean, that, that's pretty subversive. That should be like etched
1: on his face. On it his really grave. should be. Yep. It's amazing. And truth be told, he's never made a bad movie. No. Some of them are better than others, but they're all very watchable. A lot of them have gotten better over time. And I'm going to say three of them are American film classics. Okay. Either way, he's a true original filmmaker. There is no one like him. There will never be anyone like John no, no, Waters. No, 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 no. Um, that is my episode. Excellent episode. I think it was a good two parter. You're, like, yawning. You're like, oh, my God, shut the fuck well, up. I started drinking now, so that's, that takes its toll. I did, too, because I was kind of like, Slate, Jesus Christ, why did you write 22 pages about <laughs> John Waters? So,
0: question. Yeah. Are any of his films in the National Film Registry? That was a really good question,
1: and I am not sure. Usually when you read the, you know, kind of the wikis or the IMDb's, it mentions them if they are. Mm-hmm. And I don't recall seeing that any of them are, but hold on real quick and let me just do a quick search. Okay. Alright, I didn't go through the whole list, but uh, it doesn't look like anything. Pink Flamingos, Hairspray, and Multiple Maniacs aren't on there, so I didn't okay. look for any of the other ones. But so, Maybe not. Well, that's a good call to action. We should make sure that this happens. At, at least that. one of them. I would say probably Pink Flamingos deserves to be on I there. I feel like Don't it you does. think so? If Hair World and Maud made it on there. Like, yeah, yeah. Pink Flamingo should be on there. Great, great episode this is your last this is my big finale I hope that it plays well I hope that this makes sense again I didn't try to just kind of like stick a whole bunch of funny John Waters one-liners into it just because I thought you know I want to know about the movies and you know tell the story about the movie so I hope that it works if I listen to it and it doesn't then I'll just put a whole bunch of John Waters one-liners in it you don't need to well thanks everyone for listening to this two-parter I hope you made it if you made it through the dog turd scene then you probably made it through the whole rest of it so everything is good all right thanks everyone right. we'll see you next week all right bye thanks for listening to slums of film history
0: you can find us on the web at slums of where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today along with pictures videos and additional resources as well as sunday slum day our weekly recommendation for
1: the best and sometimes worst films every sunday night If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter, where we share out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies.
0: you tell me to come this way, Griselda? You know I hate nature. Look at those disgusting trees stealing my oxygen. Oh, I can't stand this scenery another minute. All natural forests should be turned into housing developments. I want cement covering every blade of grass in this nation. Don't we taxpayers have a voice anymore?